Okay, great. I think we're going to go ahead and get started here. We're waiting for one more uh, panelist, but I think we can kind of get him uh, in progress here. I'm Chris Weathery. I'm the Senior Transportation and Shipping Analyst at City. Very happy to be back, and Nicholas invites me to these. I'm always excited to attend, and we're going to be talking about the container shipping market uh, this morning. So I'm joined uh, for now with two panelists here. We have uh, Cal D'Ambrosio from CMAX Capital Management. He's a managing director there. And then we have Tassos Aslidis from the, C the CFO of Euroseas. So I, I think we want to kind of cover the landscape of container shipping here. I think that's the idea. And so I'm going to start off with some, some demand questions. And we'll go through supply. We'll talk about the order book. We'll talk about the rate environment. I also want to talk about the financing environment as well, because that's always very important to how we see these markets evolving over the course of the next couple of years. And we certainly would love to have some audience participation as we get closer to the end of our window here. We're running a little bit behind schedule, but I think we can probably catch us up here a little bit. So um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Tassos and Cal. Appreciate it. Um, you know, maybe I'll just throw out the first question to get us started here, and that's really on the demand side. So as I've been looking, and I, I cover all of transportation, both sort of surface as well as the marine side, you know, transportation volume has been very solid over the course of 2017. We've seen decent growth, and on the container shipping side internationally, we've seen mid-single-digit volume growth. Um, a little bit better on some lanes, a little bit lower on, on others, but certainly the main lines on the container trade have been very strong. And so, you know, I guess maybe what I throw out is, you know, maybe we'll start with you, Tassos. Um, what do you think is driving sort of the mid-single-digit volume growth here? You know, how sustainable do you think the demand trends are here? We, you know, we got an ISM number this morning in the U.S. that was very good. Clearly, the economy is doing well. But what do you see sort of backing up these numbers here? I think, uh, first of all, thank you, Christian. Thanks to Capitaling for the invitation. Uh, as far as your question is concerned, I think clearly the clearly what drives uh, demand for containership is economic growth. The fact that for the first time, for quite some time, we had all major developed regions of the world growing with positive trends. Europe, Japan, United States, of course, uh, China has doing a bit better than uh, expected. So all of this synchronized economic uh, recovery uh, and continued recovery has, f has fed into a strong uh, demand for container ship uh, transportation, containerized good transportation, and this is what has driven the demand for our sector uh, so far this year. That to be compared with, for example, 2015, where that number was, was expected to recover, but really got stuck in the low single digits. So really economic activity, worldwide economic activity is the main, naturally, the main driver. Sure. And Cal, from your perspective, do you see something that's sort of changed as, you know, European strength a little bit more broad-based? The U.S., I feel like we've seen an acceleration too, but I don't know if there's anything sort of specific that jumps out to you that is driven the sort of catalyst in 2017 specifically. Yeah, I mean, Tassos, I think, mentioned it's this synchronized recovery overall, because basically if you look at the last few years, container volumes have been relatively strong. Before that, they were pretty weak, and, and they were weak with the, the, the collapse of commodity prices really took out a large part of the world from the, from the trade. Places like Brazil, Africa, Australia, so on, had significant decreases in container volumes. But now with commodity prices stabilizing, even increasing, you see that part of the world uh, coming back on in gear, and Europe as well. For the last three, four years, has been really the U.S. has been driving the, the container ship uh, volume growth. But now we see Europe pitching in, and as I said, the, the commodity-driven countries as well. 
and so when you think about the types of assets that the demand has sort of been strongest for, is it sort of the, the post-Panamax world with the larger ships catching, you know, a, a higher percentage of the freight? Where do you see sort of the demand driving? I'm guessing it's on some of those longer haul lines, which probably are a little bit more skewed to the larger vessels. But how do you see that playing out? Our focus has really been on the post-Panamax sector. We, we believe that with the opening of the Panama Canal, you know, the, the, the requirement, let's say, for a very large asset class, which is the Panamax, the classic Panamax size, would diminish. And so our, our focus has really been on, on, on that side of the market. For the most part, our vessels have been on long-term charters or have been relet on longer-term periods. So we've seen utilization levels in the, in the very high 90s. So mm -hmm. our, for the most part, our fleet is employed. And I think that will continue to be the case going forward. To, to answer that from the point of view of what segment could benefit uh, most, I mean, because Europe has been the sort of newcomer in this uh, stronger economic growth, and uh, imports to Europe really involve long haul from Paris, where the larger ships get employed, the, the new big ships. Uh, so I would expect that demand growth for, for that sector uh, would be, in terms of demand, the strongest. Uh, of course, we have to look, uh, I'm sure we're going to look at the supply side later. There's a lot of supply sure. coming up there. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine that uh, that, that the growth uh, in that uh, long haul route far east to Europe, benefiting the larger ships, uh, has been the, the main one. And certainly from a, from a ton mile perspective. So, you know, when I first started covering the space, we ran through a significant sort of uptick in, in energy prices and we saw the whole fleet slow down and, and certainly absorb some capacity. But to your point, Tassos, I guess from a length of haul perspective, ton mile perspective, as we start to see some of these long mainline trade lanes strengthen, my guess is that sort of absorbs a higher amount of ships than it would if we were sort of seeing some of this more on the feeder side. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. I think that's correct. Helpful. Um, one of the things that we've seen recently and certainly you know, would love to have someone from the operator side sort of talking about this, but I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys as well, is how do you think about sort of port congestion, for, port capacity um, in the U.S. and in Canada? We've begun to hear some concerns about port congestion. We've seen whether it be from a rail perspective on outbound from the port or um, just actually in sort of port handling. There's a lot of development and capacity being added, but it's in progress right now. Is port congestion an issue that you guys see at all in, in your day-to-day -day business? We love port congestion from an owner's perspective, so that's that's something that, that is always beneficial. But um, aside from you know typhoons that we've seen in Asia uh, mm -hmm. recently, that there's quite a bit of congestion right now in China and so on. The 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 Siemens workers strike in 2015 in the West Coast that basically shut down the ports for several days. The cyber attacks on Maersk uh, this year that shut down Maersk terminals in many parts of the world. We see uh, uh, a pretty much tangent growth of both the, the, from the fleet side and the port side. There's big questions with the opening of the Panama Canal whether the East Coast ports would be uh, able to handle in the ports in the Caribbean able to handle that, and, and that seems to be the case. We have our larger ships now coming to New York, uh, going through the canal, and and we do not see port congestion, at least on the main hall of trades, as a, as a significant issue today. I can concur with that. I mean, I'm not in the operations of the department of our company, but I haven't heard any concerns or issues that or reports internally uh, that involve poor, poor congestion. Okay. I mean, we're also operating in the smaller sector, in the smaller mm -hmm. vessel sector that 
uh, we go to peripheral ports mainly in Asia, and again, we haven't seen any, okay. any reports that... Uh, and Cal, from your perspective, when you think about that shift of the Panama Canal, and we just had a, uh, a representative from New York Economic Development Corporation talking about sort of the port activity around New York and, and how you think about sort of that split of traffic, how has the East Coast been able to sort of keep up and, you know, when you think about the, the port expansion and sort of the market share, is, particularly in the U.S., as you shift maybe from the West to the East, is there more to do there? Or have we seen most of that happen? You mentioned some of the labor issues that we've had here in the U.S. It felt like that maybe was a bit of a catalyst to spur some of that market share shift from West to East. But how do you see that playing out over the next couple of years? Well, I, I think that, you know, both, both regions still have their dominant roles to play. And, so you're play, fighting for that middle ground, let's say, between the port authorities. Um, you know, our view was that the larger ships, you know, the larger companies will drive basically what type of tonnage they like to do in the different trade lanes, and they will always look to, to achieve the highest economies of scale as they can. So from our perspective, that's what drove our investment strategy to go for the larger vessels. And we're seeing the larger vessels now fully utilized. If you took a look at our fleet a couple of years ago, we had a couple of vessels of the large size calling in the U.S. East Coast. Many couldn't get through the Bayonne Bridge, but now with the expansion of the Bayonne Bridge, uh, that, that happens. Uh, and now we're seeing most of our vessels uh, use the Panama Canal. So, so there's quite a bit of activity. Now, our vessels can be interchanged. They're really trans-Pacific vessels, or they can be used for the, for the Atlantic trade. But I see that, you know, uh, as long as the port facilities uh, are in line, the natural cargo movements will go to their to their areas where they're supposed to go. Sure. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about supply tasks. As you sort of hinted, we got to go. We're going to go in this direction. I think it makes sense. So you know, one of the stats that sort of jumps out at me, and it's a number that I try to keep track of here, is idle ship capacity. And you know, I think in the summer, late summer, we were down into the sort of two percentish type range for. Um, vessels that are laid up, yeah, that's down significantly from earlier in the year, and it's probably the lowest number we've seen in a few years in this space. So you know, how do you think about that, and, and what do you think the, the, the direction is there? I'm guessing it's more of a driver of just sort of this economic growth that we've seen that's kind of pulled vessels out. But you know, is that 2%? Are there really sort of usable assets in that 2%? Can that number go lower? Yeah, first of all, you are very right by saying that it has been one of the lowest numbers in the, in the recent years, I think the lowest since 2015, and the mm -hmm. second lowest since 2010 and mm -hmm. when it was below two. Uh, I, we believe that that reflects partly seasonal trends, and um, uh, in the near term, it is, would, we would consider it natural for that number to go back up a little bit mm -hmm. as the high-end season uh, is, is approaching its end, and uh, uh, certain uh, requirements would be relaxed. So, and really this is the, the real uh, number to focus, which relates of course to the supply and demand balance, whether the demand growth that we mentioned earlier would uh, persist and would be able to absorb the upcoming supply. So really that, that's uh, uh, the, the, the equilibrium that we need to pay attention to. Uh, in the near term, we, in the company, in, in Eurosys, we believe that uh, we will see a little bit more idle fleet in the near term. Okay. Uh, primarily for seasonal, for seasonal reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just from a seasonal perspective, that certainly makes sense. And how do you think the 
sort of the new alliances, the consolidation in the market maybe affects some of these supply demand dynamics as we move forward. So that's something that we try to keep track of. And I know there's been some shifts and we've seen port calls change a little bit, but we saw an earlier presenter saying that it wasn't necessarily limiting the ports that these new alliances were hitting. They in fact were kind of going maybe even more places than they had in the past. But how, how do these sort of new alliances and consolidation within the liner company uh, market change the, the, the dynamics here? Um, look, I, th I think part of the, the, the low idle fleet was the, the, the rejiggering of the alliances yeah. earlier this year. A lot, of, a lot of these companies took quite a bit of tonnage on just in case they had to do double sailings and, and, and there was some reorganization. So we should see some of that, that situation correct itself. And to Tasso's point, we're entering the fourth quarter now that is a slack season for the container shipping industry. So we will see that, that, that as well. And, and there's also the, 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 the issue that there's about 400 ships that will be delivered during, during 2017 and, and 2018, which will add uh, you know, additional capacity. So from, from, but back to your question, I mean, from the perspective of alliances, uh, you know, most of these services have now been put in place. Uh, Clearly, there is, from the large liner uh, perspective, there is a comparative advantage in controlling your terminals. So there will be a, a redirection of cargoes to where those, those, those liners own those terminals or control those terminals. Uh, they're pretty well scattered all over the world and in most locations, so it should have, from a regional perspective, not, not a significant uh, difference, but from a specific terminal, they may have some differences. Um, but, but overall, I mean, uh, you know, from our perspective, the, the consolidation that's taking place, if you think about it, over the last three years, uh, the, the share that the top five liner companies will increase, I say will because some of these consolidations haven't been consummated yet, but will go from around 55% to over 70%. So from our perspective, we have a lot less addresses to call on to, to charter our tonnage. Mm -hmm. And from their perspective, they have a lot of room to, to bring some stability to the freight rates, uh, optimize their fleets. I think that one of the hidden uh, reserves, let's say owners have right now, is that the liner companies have significantly optimized their fleet. So any slight deviation from what they planned will, will probably translate into additional requirements. So you'll see more volatility. I think there's less excess capacity within the fleets of the large liner companies. Okay. So that, that, that's if I can add a point. Please. Macroeconomically, obviously consolidation is, is designed to create more efficiencies and uh, which requ would require fewer ships. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, we would expect less demand. But you know, that is for a given pattern of trade. If there are changes to that, if there is more demand coming from a region or there is congestion in a certain port, these perturbations from the, from the uh, pattern of trade for which you optimized, could create spikes mm -hmm. in demand for ships sure. due to these new, newer inefficiencies in the design, which could create the interest, you know, the excitement in, in shipping. But uh, as a trend, I mean, consolidation would should result in lower demand for for vessels. For vessels, but from a um, from a customer perspective, as vessel owners who charter out their ships to some of these liner companies, as you think about sort of this consolidation, as you mentioned, there's fewer people to call on. 
how do you think about, you know, do you think there's real sort of legs to rationalization, though, which should ultimately over time be a good thing for the business in terms of the improved sort of credit quality of your customer base, you know, freight rates potentially staying elevated for an extended period of time, maybe being a touch less cyclical than they have in the past. You know, from, a, from an asset owner who charters out the vessels, is, is there a benefit there or is there maybe that net negative, you think, because of the, the, the lack of demand or maybe lower demand for the ships? In a situation where there is a monopsony, fewer buyers of services, mm -hmm. that is good for the people who buy services and bad for the people who, se who sell services. Not exactly a monopoly, but sure. getting close to it. So in that sense, the, f the more consolidated groups are the fewer clients the less efficient the market is. They can sort of affect the price more. Mm -hmm. You can co compare this uh, to the, to the dry bulk and, and tanker markets, where there is so many buyers of capacity, where no one can uh, influence the price. I think on the container sector, big companies have the power to influence the, the rates. Okay. Both charter rates and freight rates. Of course, yeah. So there's a concern that over time there could be, you know, this further consolidation may be sort of a net negative for the, the, the asset owners. Yeah, we'll see how, I mean, you, you could say that at the, at the outset. I mean, we'll get to see how the dynamics in the industry will play out. Sure. Okay. And, how, and how owners will, con how independent owners like us will grow or consolidate on our side. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the big companies are the, there's a two-tier market in the containers. The, the liners who mm -hmm. sell services to the exporters, and in turn, they buy services from people like us. Do you think that, that that sort of opens a question that I had here, is that do you think that consolidation on the liner side requires or maybe gets met with consolidation on the owner side, or is that something that's you know, too optimistic for a guy like me to hope for? I think that happens to some extent as well, more so in the containership sector than in the dry bulk or, or, or mm -hmm. tanker sector. There we saw primarily commercial consolidation, which mm -hmm. is the one that makes more sense. Um, we haven't seen that as, as much on the independent container owner side. We'll see how the, the trends will. We're, we're, f we're fighting with the oversupply that we created for the industry for the, the last 10 years, or we'll see when we absorb that. Okay. Cal, do you have a view on that in terms of whether you think there needs to be more consolidation? Do we need people who control 100, 150, 200 vessels as opposed to, you know, a number of owners who have a, a smaller share? I think there's some of that taking place right now. I mean, if you think about the average uh, ship owner in the container ships space, they are larger than, than many of the other segments. Mm -hmm. uh, Tass has made a very good point. I think there is some level of commercial consolidation taking place as you start creating pools and, and things of that nature that don't are not as broadly used, let's say, in the container ship space. But you're seeing moves to do that. Now it's tricky. I mean, every every owner is, a, is there's an independent street to them, and and it's not always easy, both from an ownership perspective and from a liner perspective as well. Yeah. So I mean, in history, these consolidations that are taking place in the past. Eventually, when the market gets better, people start fighting for market share, and and, and things all of a sudden change. But but I think that we will see consolidation on on the owner side as well. Okay. It's also, if I may, Christian, please. It's also different on the containership side because. If you become too big, you might consider becoming a liner company too. So, I mean, if we're talking about independent owners consolidation, mm -hmm. uh, it's a different animal compared to the, to the dry bulk sector. Uh, you can be a financial consolidator, like, like many uh, companies uh, are, that are especially the ones that are public, but it's, it's a different sort of uh, uh, end, end point for, an independ for independent container ownership consolidation. Okay. 
Okay, that's a good point. I appreciate that. That's helpful. Um, let's talk a little bit about the order book. So, Cal, you mentioned that the fleet is going to grow. I think you said 400 ships. I mean, we have, you know, a 3.5% target this year, but it certainly is back halfway to 3.5% capacity growth in the industry, but certainly is back halfway because we're running below that through the first sort of, you know, let's call it eight, nine months based on the data that we have of the year. And then we have another 4% growth expected for next year. So it seems like that's a reasonable amount of capacity given demand trends. But how do you think about sort of that rate, you know, that rate outlook or that supply demand outlook as we move forward? Can, can we see or expect demand to be able to keep pace and be able to absorb these new ships coming in? There's a, there's a couple of things. If you think about global supply uh, or the fleet, the fleet over the last three, four years has grown by about 25 percent. Mm -hmm. you know, it's about 21 million ton uh, TU right now. And, the, and, the, and in, from a ship perspective, it's only grown about 3%. So what you're seeing is very specific growth in the fleet. And, sure. and, and the growth is really taking in the, the post-Panamax, the larger vessels, the 20,000s. And those vessels are basically, the, the, anything over 14,000 is really dedicated to the Far East Europe trade. So depending on how that trade does, it depends how those vessels will do. Mm -hmm. Because it's difficult to put a 20,000 in the Trans-Pacific or any, any really any other trade lane. But I think that it's, uh, it's an ambitious uh, uh, target from a demand perspective to, to meet. I mean, right now, most projections are showing somewhere in the mid-single mid digits between 4 and 6%, depending on which econometric uh, firm you, you look at. So it's going to be – our perspective is that uh, the, the overcapacity will correct itself a little bit over the next couple of years, but it's not going to be uh, – we're looking more into late 1920 when we start seeing – tighter supply-demand balance. Okay. I think that's our estimate, too. I think we, we expect to see a sort of a balanced situation um, with swings either way, depending mm -hmm. on how demand shapes out. Uh, definitely the reduced scrapping makes the, the balancing coming a little later. Uh, but if you look at the order book to get a sense of where the industry goes, the order book for the very large ships, it's 100%, mm -hmm. right? as much as uh, as the fleet is, the same amount of ships are being uh, being built. So there is a one concentration there, which would be very much exposed to the to the Europe Far East trade. And then the other sector that uh, has a little bit high order book compared to all the others is the high, the large feeders, the two to three thousand, which mm -hmm. have an order book of fourteen percent, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for an overall average of thirteen percent for the entire fleet. So if anything, the market forces tell you that these two sectors, the, the very big ships and the large feeders, could be the months of, of, of transport for our industry in the, in the years to come. But there's all the other ships for the time being that we have to work with. Uh, and you know, the introduction of the new Panama Canal and uh, the time it will take for the, for the pattern of trade uh, to settle, uh, we'll see you know, whether it will be more cascading uh, and how, what segments supply will be absorbed faster than others. Okay, that's helpful. And you mentioned scrapping. That was something I wanted to talk about as well. So, so as ship owners, and you're thinking about the environment that we're in right now, we've got good demand, but the outlook is still, I guess, a little bit unclear from an owner's perspective. How are you making that economic decision to scrap a ship in this environment? So, you know, when, when you see what the rates are offered right now, and we can talk about that in a little bit, but, you know, how are you making that decision? Will you expect to see that potentially pick up here or, or stay roughly about the same? I think it's not a no-brainer, to say, to say the least. 
because with the rates re having recovered a bit, uh, it's, it barely makes sense to, to, to pass a SIP through its fourth or fifth special survey. So it's really depends on the, spe on the specific SIP, I would say. Okay. To, to this is how we do it. We evaluate the cost we expect to bear if we get it through the survey or not. Uh, against the prospects of the, of the market for that particular type of SIP and certain, as I mentioned earlier, as because the feeders concentrate on the large feeders, mm -hmm. there are some sub-segments of the feeders, we operate on feeders, which we feel that are less commercially attractive, so we might be more inclined to, to scrap a SIP like that if, it go, if it's to go through its fourth or fifth special survey. But I would say it's more on a SIP-by-SIP -SIP basis at current market conditions. If the market improves a little more, you would say you would definitely go through the surveys okay. and not scrap it. Mm -hmm. If it goes back to the five, six thousand dollar per day range, I think it's a no-brainer that you will scrap a ship that is approaching the, the latter part of its life. Yeah, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think I, I think it's uh, as Tasso said, it's it's a ship by ship class situation. It's an owner by owner situation as well. I mean, you saw a lot of scrapping taking place uh, a couple years ago historical high levels, a lot of it was driven by German ship owners or KG owners that didn't really, there's no money there to do mm -hmm. the special survey, which will be uh, an expenditure north, north of a million dollars, let's say, if it's sure. a second, third. So I think the same case will go forward. Now, I think every container ship segment, except the very small ones, are earning, they're covering their OPEX and, and an interest. An interest. So at that point, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a lot of appetite for scrapping because once you scrap, you give up your option value of, of some sure. recovery. So, so I think that you know, uh, scrapping will be relatively low or lower, let's say, than we've seen the last couple of years. Okay. So I know you both have different sort of parts of the market where you tend to have focuses, right, on the larger side and then on the smaller side of the market. But you know, as you take a step back and think about the space, and we've seen that sort of barbell approach in the order book, as you mentioned, Tassos. How do you think about sort of placing bets in this environment? You know, w would there be any reason to sort of vary uh, your approach over the course of the next couple of years as you see this order book develop and you see sort of the alliances connect? I mean, how, how do we think about that? Is there anything different to do? Uh, we looked at the, the industry and our investment in it opportunistically, I would say. Mm -hmm. We try to find, we have always been trying to find good projects to invest, focusing, as you said, on, uh, on, on the smaller vessels um, where we feel we have better expertise and uh, we can employ them uh, uh, more easily commercially and also they require less capital to, to, to invest sure. and we were on the smaller company. But we did do a, a project that was on, the, on a larger size. I mean, a few years back through one of our joint ventures, we bought a, a post-Panamax container, 5,600 TU container ship, mm -hmm. purely because its price was very low and it, was, it looked like a good project. Mm -hmm. And we have managed to keep that ship uh, uh, just breaking even for the last three or four years. And now that segment seems to be earning a bit better and we expect our investment to pay off significantly. So we are by definition or by choice, let's say, on the smaller size because we feel a little more comfortable, but we would do projects peri on peripherally larger sizes that we consider good. Okay. So you're willing to move up the, the, the ladder a little bit. A little bit, if the project makes sense. If it makes sense. And Cal, from your perspective, any, any change to the way you think about deploying capital? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that 
the key for us was to be opportunistic and take advantage of relatively low valuations across the segment. One of the things that we did not want to do is tap into the new building market, which a lot of other people uh, does. It's, it's a bit of an easier way to get into shipping, as, as you don't have to worry about the ship for That's a couple of years. Yeah. Sure. And, 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 and you play the option value. So we, we've stuck to what we believed was going to become, was going to take over the Panamax segment. Is the Panamax segment was the largest container ship space, over 600 ships of these, of these size. Uh, that with the opening of the Panama Canal, they wouldn't become redundant, but that particular trade lane would be unavailable for them, which is not economical. So I think, and back to your point and, and our discussion earlier, that consolidation, we want to be a, a significant player in a segment of the market. That okay. gives us ability to have dialogues with, uh, with uh, the, the three or four liner companies that are left and, uh, and, 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 and have capacity and product for them to, to, to take. So I think we will continue in, in more or less uh, the zone that we're in, maybe newer tonnage, but but still secondhand in the post Panamax segment. Okay, yeah, that, that's a, that's a fair point. So there, there's an advantage to being somewhat specialized when you think about your customer base provides you, I guess maybe with a little bit of sort of heft as well as potential pricing power down the road. I guess it's a way to think about that. And ability to fulfill their requirements. Yeah. So yeah. Deeper have, pool. Yeah. yeah. When you have options for them. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. And then. This is the question I always love to ask uh, shipping owners, and you know, I, I, I'm always curious to kind of ha see how you guys think about it. But, but if you were to look out and into the crystal ball here for the next couple of years and think about the rate environment, you know, how would you expect it to play out? I mean, it sounds like the comments so far suggest that maybe, you know, we're, we're in a little bit of we're in a better environment than we were before, but not necessarily a great environment yet. I mean, how do you think rates play out over the next couple of years? I think. Pretty much as you say, I think we, we see a more balanced supply and demand. Mm -hmm. It could vary by segment by segment, but uh, overall I ex we expect and we working with the assumption that rates would not go back to five and $6,000 a yeah. day, for at least for the feeder ships, will um, hoover at where we are and gradually improve. I think we saw during the summer and the late spring very few um, inquiries for, 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 for projects for, for, for charters. And despite that, rates stayed around eight $9,000 yeah. uh, for feeder ships. So that's encouraging. Seems that uh, it, it means that charters believe that uh, we're moving north from where we are. And you know, they're not trying to, they don't feel that they can squeeze us out. So that, that's encouraging. We expect to see rates at today's levels on slightly higher. Slightly higher, okay. And Cal, from your perspective, does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, if you think about you know rates right now in our segments are in the high teens, low twenties. Okay. So if you think about it from a replacement perspective, you're in the mid thirties. So there's plenty of, of, of room until you start getting people thinking about ordering new ships. Mm -hmm. uh, and how do you so that that brings up a great point? And, and as a as a analyst, as a financial person, I'm always curious how owners think about that. Do you look at cash on cash returns? What's sort of the hurdle level that you sort of need to see to make incremental investments in it when you think about, you know, think about these assets? And what's the term over which you make these decisions? Well, I mean, we, we look at it from, we have a five to 10 year horizon in okay. our investments. So we're looking to get returns in the, in the, in the teens, 20s. Okay. So we're looking to buy distressed assets, uh, operate them efficiently, uh, and, and get the capital gains from 
market appreciation. I think that, in, at least in our segment, I think it's a good buyer's market for mm -hmm. the next, let's say, 18, 12 to 18 months. And then I think supply demand will get tighter then, and it's more of a seller's market from, from our investment approach, which we're looking to buy distressed type assets. And Got it. At that point, we'd probably be looking more at transactions that will be with longer term charter coverage uh, that gets us into the next. Okay. And we've been always had <coughs> Um, a fixed evaluation form for, uh, framework uh, w where we evaluate every project we see in terms of some historical uh, averages, mm -hmm. simply to rank it and sort of get uh, in within that framework um, a, a rate of return. And if that rate of return is above, above a certain threshold, typically double digits mm -hmm. on an unlevered basis, we consider and sort of look into the details of the project. Okay. So we try to stick not we try not to use a specific forecast but a historical framework like where you are essentially where you are in the cycle sure to to start looking in the project if the technical characteristics are to our liking we might we proceed with the investment is there any what's the depth of the term market so are you able to get anything beyond a relatively short-term charter right now i mean how available are multi-year deals for our segment i don't think there are that many deals available yeah. so we are Primarily on short-term charters from three to months to one year. To one year, and Cal, from the same, maybe a little longer on your yeah, side. Yeah, no, we. I mean, the the we we have right now probably we're in a you know three to six month. We're in the fourth quarter, so basically right. th this is not a a, sure. a, a term. Uh, the, the liners will want term for 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 that. So we've seen some transactions that extend three to four years. We mm -hmm. wouldn't do it at those levels. I think that those are you know relatively low charter levels uh, from a historical and, and from a forecasting perspective. Uh, so I think over the next couple of years, we're gonna see sh relatively shorter terms. One of the things that attracted us also to this, this post-Panamax segment that we believe it's gonna become more of a, a shorter term market. Uh, okay. As more of these vessels come off their original charters and, and start playing the spot market. Yep, okay, that makes sense. I have a few more questions I want to touch on on the financing side, but certainly want to make sure we have time for the audience. If there are any questions, feel free to raise your hand and jump into the conversation. More than happy to have you. Um, while everybody sort of thinks about what they might want to ask, I'm going to move on to the financing side of it a little bit. Um, you know, for years at these types of events, we talk a lot about the availability of financing or the lack thereof. I don't know, maybe each one of you, if you want to take a shot at what you think sort of the financing market looks like, how much liquidity there is available for ships, or you know, is there really not much um, unless you have sort of robust sort of term charters attached to it? Uh, financing exists and, and it does not exist at the same time. I mean, you can, we, we operate ships that are past their middle uh, age, so it's even more challenging. However, we have been able to work with a couple of uh, financiers to get conventional debt, mm -hmm. uh, and we're able to finance typically uh, ships in their late teens at, uh, at, scrap, at, at a scrap price or 60% of market price, something like that. Okay. So, I mean, some deals that we announced uh, uh, last month and uh, took delivery of, one of those ships uh, uh, last Friday, we expect to finance them at about uh, 60 percent of their of their market 60%. value. Okay. Uh, but not many banks do that. I mean, we're working some, with one or two banks in Greece that still provide uh, elder vessel financing. From international uh, lenders, uh, you can you can get financing, but even a lower percentage uh, uh, 
of the market value. Of the market value. Okay. Does that sound yeah, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, think I, about it? I think financing is available for new buildings, um, okay. you know, with, with charter backs or, or longer term charter type transactions. We haven't had that much issue raising financing for our fleet. Our fleet is, you know, we have charter cargo and quite a bit of it. So, um, but it's definitely a different world. I mean, it's it's going to like the principal's office now. Right. Bank. It's not a it's not a friendly. Uh, let me let me take you out to dinner and let's yeah. try to finance your ships. It's, more like it's, it's a it's not a robust let's say financing environment. More of a pull environment than a push environment I these days, is what it feels like. Part. Okay, that that's helpful. Um, and did leverage levels sound about right? Do you think you can still get sort of 60 if you have? Or can you go above 60 if you have new build with term associated with it? I think the, it depends on the project. I think, you know, to Tassos's point, I mean, I think that you can get 60%, you know, uh, as long as scrap value plays into the equation. Sure. It only helps with older vessels. Newer vessels, it's, it's more challenging than, than to get the 60%. We have, an, we have an internal cap on the leverage that we use. Uh, so... We haven't had problems reaching that reaching cap. That cap. Okay, that's helpful. We're running almost short on time here, but I wanted to make sure if there are any questions from the audience, we have a second to get to them. If not, I think we'll uh, probably, oh, we have one over here. A lot of cascade t has taken place in uh, during 2013, 14, and uh, and 15. Um, we we have to see whether the the freeing of the Panamaxes after they become redundant due to the opening of the canal would create incremental cascading. We haven't seen that so far in the market. Uh, in feeders, as in all the container ships, people tend to use the the, the maximum economies of scales they can. So that's why all the new orders tend to concentrate on the larger uh, size of feeder. Um, so we, we don't expect dramatic changes in, in the dynamics of our sector, at as if you compare what we expect to what happened during 2013 and 2015. Great. On your financing point, I think there is more interest for equity financing in, in, in the industry lately, right? So that partly addresses. Se seems like it. Provides, yeah. So they can. Uh, we can maybe see a, a, a recovery of the equity markets, I guess, from a shipping perspective. And on, and, on, and on the consolidation point, again, perhaps if the industry consolidates, it might have better access to financing. So that, sure. and definitely my company tries to play a role there in trying to act as a consolidating platform. Sure, the more scale you have, it would I would imagine sort of right. the, the easier the equity piece of the house would be, and maybe we could see a bit yeah. of a rebalancing. Right. Equity, also the debt could be easier yeah. if you have a bigger Sure. Corporate guarantee to offer to a, to a lender. That's correct on a portfolio basis. Yeah. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate oh, you. you joining Thanks. us this morning. Our Thanks, pleasure. everybody.